This is an ABC podcast. Before we start, just a warning. What you're about to hear has some strong language and references to sexual violence. If you find that upsetting, you might want to give it a miss or talk to someone. There are some great organisations waiting to help, including Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue at beyondblue.org.au. Remy's shoes are polished to a high-gloss finish. It's a frosty autumn morning and she's waiting for her train to take her to a high-paying job in central Sydney. She's in her early 30s and this morning she's wearing a tight-cut suit with a Burberry scarf wrapped around her shoulders. Remy works in recruitment, where she smooth-talks lawyers into taking high-powered jobs for six-figure sums. But there's a secret she doesn't want her work colleagues to know. From the age of 12, Remy sold cocaine and other drugs, and she was good at it. We've changed her voice and her name, and that's because she doesn't want colleagues and friends knowing the real story about her past. There's still nights that I barely sleep. There's nights that I wake up in sweats. There's nights where I wake up at three o'clock in the morning, absolutely beaming because I've just had the most vivid nightmare and relived encounters or seeing people overdose. So it's something that I still pay the price for. Australia has the highest prevalence of cocaine users in the world and they're paying top dollar for it. While we hear a lot about busts, cartels and calls for policy change, we rarely hear from those caught in the web and how they got tangled. This week, a different background briefing, a personal story from the other side of Australia's war on drugs, the criminal's side. Stories like this are hard to verify, so we've taken steps where we can to make sure this one is accurate. But it's one person's story, her experiences, and her version of events. My name's Mahmoud Fazal, and I've been reporting on crime for years now. I was a member of an outlaw motorcycle club for a time and have known people from Remy's world my whole life. But of all the stories I've heard, Remy's just got under my skin. I'm in a street which is about as middle class as they come. Wide roads, towering eucalypts, and lots of brown brick double-storey homes, many with double garages. Parked around a curve in the road is a milk-white Mercedes-Benz G-Class, sometimes called a G-Wagon. Fresh wheels. Thank you, thank you. Nice to finally meet you. It's the kind of four-wheel drive you would see in a hip-hop video or a movie about mob bosses. I got some nice wheels, driver. Take you a few spots around Sydney, tell you some stories, show you some things. That's Remy. Today she's sporting a Valentino jumper and a Rolex. And when she smiles, I catch flashes of gold from her grills. She's fast talking and full of swagger. It still spins me out. It was only a few years ago I'd still spin out that I could afford what I wanted when I wanted my bills were paid. Remy grew up hard. She's a survivor. And I reckon all that self-confidence and bravado masks a lot of trauma. Today, she's taking me on a bit of a trip down memory lane.
Remy's experience isn't unique, but it is uncommon. A lot of people might be surprised that a woman was so heavily involved in the drug world. Yeah, and it's wild because there's a lot more women involved than you think. Um, and the higher up the food chain it gets, sometimes the more women are involved, and that's the craziest part. Um, it's not always the girls that you think. It's not always the people from the rough areas or the bad homes. I know girls with mega rich parents who've thrown their lives away for the life. I also know people who've made millions off the life and, and dipped out. But um, it definitely makes you a target if you don't move the right way with the right people. As we head west, upscale double-storey homes with huge garages make way for small fibre houses. We drive past a road sign. Welcome to Mount Druitt. So this is Mount Druitt. This is where I grew up for the most part. Only a 40-minute drive west of Sydney, but a world apart in terms of lifestyle and opportunity. Almost a decade of my life out here. I think my most formative years. I think the craziest part of Sydney I've been in so far in terms of the level of wrath, the level of crime, the level of poverty. It's a tough suburb. Out the window, I spot more than a few police cars. This is a neighbourhood that's battling an affordable housing crisis, where the median weekly income is a little over $600. There's three generations of the family living in the same house and none of them have ever had a job. So how are they meant to learn? How are they meant to know any better when everybody they're surrounded by lives the same way? In this postcode, homicide and property damage rates are consistently above the state average. Remy sees these problems, but she tells me there's another side to Mount Druitt no one ever really speaks about. It is really communal, and there are really good, really good-hearted people out here who do work together because without that, when we were all coming up, we all would have been done without each other, basically. So I think that's one thing people don't ever really bring up. It's not the nicest place. It's not the safest place, but if you know the right people, you're always looked after and you, you always have what you need. We drive through the back streets until we reach a small red brick home. So, uh, it's actually one of the family homes that I grew up in when I first moved out to Mount Druitt. I think I lived here for six, seven years. In Remy's childhood home, secrets were everybody's business. I didn't get a lot of privacy as a teenager or a child where there was no closed doors in the house. I wasn't allowed to close the door to my bedroom. Her bedroom sounds pretty typical for a preteen. Walls plastered with celebrities cut out of magazines. Alyssa Milano from Charmed at the time was my, my famous person crush, my celebrity crush. And I had a wall decked out in posters, just different photos of her from magazines I'd collected. But to her stepfather, those pictures hinted at something that didn't sit well with him. Remy was brought up in a conservative Lebanese family and she didn't fit the mould. I started to dress in a more tomboyish type of way. I started to take on a bit more of a masculine persona. Remy knew she was different, but she couldn't talk about it at home. Basically anything that's looked at as any form of taboo, it's not in our culture that you speak about things like that, sexuality, mental health. That is until one night. I got a text message on my phone. And her stepfather noticed the message. Um, he saw that the message had come from somebody called Bubba. Bubba was a girl Remy was interested in. He walked into my room. My phone at that time was on my bedside table. So he'd grabbed that. 
um, he saw the message uh, from a name saved under Bubba. Um, from there, he proceeded to go through the messages. Remy's secret was out. He went through those text messages and realised I was talking to somebody I was romantically involved with. Um, he decided to call that number when a female answered that phone. Hello? Um, and that was, that was the start of that. He began shouting. It was incredibly loud. It was an incredibly loud argument. It was enough to have his brothers from the neighbouring houses actually come over to the house to see what the issue was and what the commotion was. Um, his roof, his rules. So I wasn't playing by the rules and I wasn't being the person he wanted me to be, which meant there was no room in the house for me. And that's when her stepfather said six words she's never forgotten and never managed to forgive. Pack a bag and get out. Remy grabbed her khaki jacket, shoved a few bits and pieces into her backpack and walked out. That's still something that to this day I've warned every romantic partner, every housemate I've ever had, regardless of what happens between us, don't speak those words to me because rendering somebody homeless at 12 years old is a pretty intense thing. That was the night Remy's life of crime began. In her desperation, she came to the only place she felt safe a 24-hour diner called City Extra. Sitting at the front of City Extra on Church Street in Parramatta because I knew that it was 24 hours, which meant I was sitting under surveillance cameras and if I managed to fall asleep or not offer myself throughout the night that I'd be the safest as I possibly could be in that position. Under glaring neon lights, Remy considered her options. Her family didn't want her. She had no money and nowhere to go. I had very limited options at that time. So I still sort of see it as I had a sink or swim mentality and I just chose to swim. These days, Parramatta is a big city with skyscrapers that rival Sydney's CBD. But back when Remy came here as a kid, it seemed somehow smaller and grimier. So this is another one of those places, this is North Parramatta, that we're in now. So just down the road from Parramatta. We parked the G-Wagon across from a vast sandstone cathedral with a soaring bell tower, only slightly taller than the towering McDonald's sign down the road. So this was one of the first, I guess you'd call it trap or bando, whatever you want to call it. So I guess for everyone else that doesn't know and doesn't live that life, basically the first place that I chose to make my shop to sell drugs, basically. At that point, I was only 13. I think it was maybe six months after I'd been out of home. She began picking up new skills, what she calls trapping and hustling, which are just different words for drug dealing. Whether she realised it or not, someone like Remy could be very useful for the right person. She was young and homeless with no police record, the perfect mule to move and sell drugs on the street. And that person eventually found her, an older woman who was a key player in Parramatta's drug world. Can you kind of sketch an image of this person? What kind of person were they? She was older. I would have been, as I said, in my teens, and they would have been in their sort of early to mid-30s. Bigger lady, I'd describe it as, I call it jail fit, where they come out with shoulders like a a swimmer and she's built like a brick house, quite physically intimidating. So she did have a lot of respect on the street. The woman became a kind of teacher. She played like a mother hen role to everybody. It wasn't just always 
pushing drugs. I was taught the basics of how to survive and how to get by, which obviously meant I felt I had a certain level of loyalty and I had to repay her. In the drug economy, every relationship is transactional. And so she got Remy to sell drugs on her behalf. That became Remy's job. The first offer that she gave me was basically that I would get paid a portion of each deal that I would sell. And at this point, I wasn't old enough to get Centrelink, so I wasn't getting any sort of government assistance. I certainly wasn't getting any assistance from my family or anybody within my family. So it was entirely up to me to make that money for myself. She offered me what, in retrospect, was absolute crumbs for the risk that I was taking. But as I said at the time, I was homeless, I was hungry, and I needed to get myself out of that position. Tell me about the most important lesson you learned from her. Anybody who truly cares about you will never put you in a position where you're in harm's way. If you could have a conversation with her now, what would you say to her? Can I be completely honest? Fuck you. Um, And the fuck was wrong with you, to be perfectly honest, because who guides a kid in that direction? Like, I don't know who hurt her or how far gone her life was, but as someone who's around the same age as when I would have met her, it doesn't add up to me because I'd be caught dead before you had me guiding kids in that direction. Remy didn't know where the drugs had come from or about the shadowy supply chain beyond. Nothing, absolutely nothing. I was completely naive to that world. There was her, I, and a couple of other people, and it was basically we answered to her. Remy's job was to find a spot and move the gear so she could pass the profits back up the chain. The church was convenient. She lived not far away, and there was a lot of the right sort of foot traffic. I started to develop certain methods. Um, Big lighters, taking out the bottom of a big lighter, drying that out, putting your drugs in a balloon, putting the balloons inside the lighter. I can't count the amount of times that me and my guy mates have been arrested, held for the weekend, held for a week, put on remand been released and still had drugs in our possession when we were released because they don't check the inside of a lighter. Still to this day, I've never heard of anybody being pulled over and having their lighter searched. Each night, she would hang out with the local security guards. They had a sort of unspoken rule. You don't cause trouble for me and I won't cause trouble for you. But Remy was vulnerable in other ways. Many of the people she dealt with were men. And as a young female drug dealer, she was a walking target. Going back almost 20 years ago now, men weren't as coy about the way they acted. Sexual harassment and and things like that were things that were far more excusable in that time. One day, she was hanging out at a friend's place, a friend who she says is trustworthy. But on this particular occasion, he'd invited his cousin over. I just did not feel right about this guy. By that stage, I'd been on the streets for a little while. I'd started to develop a bit of a sixth sense um, for when I was in any sort of danger for the most part. And I remember very clearly before this guy left, me telling him repeatedly that I wasn't comfortable. He reassured me that I'd be fine, I'd be safe, nothing would happen. As soon as he left, this guy tried to make a move on me. And prior to him leaving, I'd actually moved the shisha and placed the shisha right next to me. So to know that basically I had a weapon if this guy did turn on me. And once he did turn on me, I used that argile or that shisha as a weapon to basically defend myself against him. 
Remy says she felt like she didn't have any choice but to put herself in these situations. And her new friends were also her customers and suppliers. Danger was part of the job. Didn't you ever think, like, this is not worth it? Yeah, but what was I going to do? Go to who, turn to who, go to where, have who feed me, have who pay my bills and, and, and make sure I can eat day by day and I'm maintained as a person and I can actually... Like, I, we didn't have a functional washing machine or dryer in the place that we lived in. Even paying for my laundry was an expense that at 12, 13 years old, I had to consider whether I could afford to wash my clothes. The sun's just setting. It's magic hour, and the sound of homebound peak hour traffic rumbles away behind us. We're in a lush park between the Sandstone Church and the McDonald's. And it was in this park that Remy, when she was just a young teenager, had her first experience of serious violence when a drug deal turned ugly. I got a phone call. My intuition was telling me not to come to this drop. It was a lot of money. It was one of those days I needed that money and I was willing to take the extra risk to get that money. I actually got set up and got baited out, basically. Walk across the road there. <clears throat> There's two girls who were probably in their 40s, around their 40s. I got jumped by both of them and actually got stabbed four times in total by these people out the front. And back then in Permata, you just got left to bleed. Bypassers who witnessed the attack didn't come over to help. So I'm literally on the phone to the boys, my homeless friends, asking them to call ambulances and help me. Because that civilians just part and say like it was nothing. Obviously, people don't want anything to do with things like that. But I was a child, so for me, as an adult now, if I saw that happen to a kid, it's probably not something I'd turn a blind eye to, but I can understand why others would. Didn't the police ask any questions when they arrived? I asked a lot of questions. I didn't know who the people were. <laughs> Can't help you. I got attacked. Smart ass with a big mouth. I got attacked. Remy didn't see a doctor either. They'd asked too many questions and police would inevitably get involved. By the time she was in her early teens, Remy had already been arrested a couple of times. She describes her interactions with police as intense. I was a 12-year-old who knew I had nothing to lose, that this record did not follow me as an adult, so I had quite an attitude and quite a mouth when it came towards them. Can you tell us some of the things that police would say to you when they would encounter you on the streets? A lot of it would just be them being patronising pricks, to be honest, and trying to get a rise out of a, a teenager for some reason. It would be the usual, you know, you've got a good home, you're doing this to yourself. There's a saying, don't get high on your own supply. But many do. How old were you when you first tried cocaine? I was around 13, 14. Remy says she began using her own drugs to cope with the stress. It also kept her awake during those long nights on the church steps. And it was only a few months into that 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 progressed to me, smoking crystal meth, because the cocaine was a lot more expensive. It was me cutting into my own profits. It was also not as effective at keeping me up all night as the meth was. And so for many reasons, I jumped to quite hard drugs quite early on in life. As Remy fell deeper and deeper into drug dealing, she managed to maintain some links to her old life and her old self. 
Remy stayed in touch with her mother, but she was banned from family reunions. I remember pretty vividly one of my little brother's birthdays. I'd called to try and say happy birthday and he wouldn't let me speak to my little brother on his birthday. And that was one of the most difficult things for me at that point because my family does mean a lot to me. When you have a major break with your family and you go your own way and start to become a different person, it can be difficult to ever be that person that they remembered and they knew. How difficult is it going back and seeing your family again in this new skin? I went from being this acrylic nail, nice makeup having, uh, blonde foils in my hair, long, really long feminine nice hair, dressed very feminine to I'm in G-star jeans and a guy's T-shirt or a G-star jeans and a wife beater, cut three quarters of my hair off, got half my head shaved and I'm covered in tattoos. The first time it really kind of hit anyone that I'd made something of my life was when I managed to show up alive to my 21st birthday and everybody spent the entire night literally congratulating me on the fact that I just lived to 21. We walk through a warren of narrow, dark hallways. Every square inch is covered in graffiti, like fat spiderwebs. This place is wild. Remy's at home here. It is wild, but I'll show you something else wild behind the store. She opens the fire escape and takes a seat on the grimy concrete step she once did business from. This store made me a lot of money. We're now in one of the most sought-after inner-city suburbs, Surrey Hills. Remy tells me this is where she levelled up. I went from being a runner, being a pusher for other people and making next to no money and risking a lot to realising I could kind of do that on my own. I've always been good with sales, I've always been good with business, which is kind of how I transitioned my street skills into the corporate world. Her clientele changed. They were now doctors, managing directors, lawyers and, yes, journalists too. She was now running her own operation but won't say who she was sourcing her cocaine from. And I kind of figured that corporate clients were actually a lot better than the street clients because they come with a lot more money and a lot more guaranteed money. So I started to meet more professionals, started to network, go for the after-work drinks, hang out with the managing directors, meet their managing director friends, some of the biggest cokeheads I've ever met. I saw it as a really good opportunity to level up my game and that's what I did. At times, it was easy to be making 10, 10 grand a day, 40, 50 grand a week, and that was on a five-day week. I'd see the same 15, 20 people. These people take in decent amounts because I only see them all once or twice a week. But as she learned, drug dealing with corporate clients was very different from dealing with the clients back in Parramatta. They didn't get their hands dirty, instead relying on go-betweens to pick up their product. Most of them have mules that they'll send, so they'll send people who are either just living in houses, doing it tough, working girls, basically whoever they can take advantage of to be willing to take the fall for them. From that step in Surrey Hills, she built up a number of return customers, and she watched some become addicted and hit rock bottom. When they go from the nicely groomed, well-manicured man, takes care of themselves, dresses well, showing up a mess, showing up the tracksuit that I know he was wearing the day before. Man's not even going to work anymore and physically looks like he's hit rock bottom. It's time to call it a day. 
Do you feel any guilt? Do you feel bad about what you've done to make that money? I feel bad for some of the things I've done to people throughout the years as a byproduct of that life. Um, not necessarily the selling the drugs, no. Remy was earning serious money. With a solid business draining the deep pockets of Sydney's professional, well-paid drug users, her life was now fast cars, custom jewellery, lavish nights out. One night, she tells me, she blew a hundred grand. How does that happen? How do you blow money like that? Try taking 20 girls, 15 girls to a club, getting two tables so that it looks like you can actually have this many girls around you. Bottle service upon bottle service. Still one of the cringiest things I've ever done, I think, is spend close to $100,000 in a strip club throwing money. Like, people have seen me do some pretty stupid things in the past, and that's definitely in the top three. But more money just meant higher stakes. Remy was taking larger amounts of cocaine on consignment, and she was getting into debt with her suppliers. I've been, at times, close to six figures in debt because there were times where I've been robbed. There were times where shit just went left and we'd be on our way back. There was times we cop chases, things had to go missing out the window. And the violence ramped up as well. She mentions one time when things went south pretty badly. I was meant to be doing what was meant to be, a fairly straightforward exchange. Whilst approaching the car, I had a very off feeling in my stomach. Within a few seconds of being in this person's presence, I had a gun put in my mouth and I was basically kidnapped and robbed for what I had. This wasn't the only time things got dark. I've got a sensitive question. Um, You mentioned violent encounters and you don't have to answer this if you prefer not to, just say I'd prefer not to answer this. Were you ever sexually assaulted or um, threatened with sexual assault or abuse? Yeah, um, that happened a couple of times when I was younger. But as I got older, I started to become a little bit more violent. I started to become a little bit more well-versed in self-defence and I'd sort of learned to protect myself. Can you give us any more detail about those encounters, what you had to say or do? Um, So the first time I was held for a couple of days, basically by two guys sort of in their, I think they would have been in their mid-20s to early 30s. And... um, I was basically kept as a form of slave for a couple of days and the only negotiation that I could manage to pull off with them was me literally paying my way out of that situation and offering them a decent amount of money to basically let me out of the situation I was in. Right, so... That's heavy. Yeah, that was one of the bigger jobs. (sighs) That particular experience occurred while she was in Sydney. It made her question whether it was all worth it. But on the other side, there was the money, which enabled her to, in her words, buy lots of shiny things. Even this, though, began to lose its appeal. She learned that drug money isn't like normal money. It can't be used to put a deposit on a house. You can't get pay slips. You can't declare it to the taxman. You can't build a credit rating. It's dirty money. I started to realise that all of this money wasn't real in the sense of you can't do anything with it once you get older, that it can't be used to build any sort of wealth. So I started to slowly move into more traditional forms of employment and moved into corporate roles and things like that. 
These days, Remy reflects on the impacts the drug business had on the people she used to know. I know people that have been deported who they can't even see their family. They don't, they don't get to celebrate birthdays. They, someone passes away, people can fly to the other side of the world now. Like, families have been separated. To me, the money's not worth separating families and things like that. And when you break it down, that's, that's what it all comes down to. But for me, that life's not for me. It comes with too many repercussions and not enough benefits. When you're seeing the other side of life, hard work gets you a lot further. You respect the money a lot more. You have a lot more fun with it, to be honest. You actually respect the money that you spend, and I think that's a big difference. Inch by inch, bit by bit, she says she cut off her ties to that world. It took a couple of years. Between the physical and sexual assaults, the lifestyle in itself, the level of anxiety that I current, like, constantly was under, it just it started to get to the point where it wasn't worth it for me anymore. For me, the peace of mind and knowing that I had an actual foundation was far more important than quick money for me. And so once I sort of trained my mind to appreciate basically my safety, my health and my sanity more than I did a dollar note, then I was pretty quick to shift my life after that. Remy doesn't want to give me too many details about her life today, but she tells me it pays well. She has a property portfolio and she catches the train to work like everyone else. If you wanted to, could you get back into that lifestyle? In five minutes, yeah. It's difficult. <laughs> I, I think about that every day. I think about that every time I have to get up at 5.30 in the morning in the middle of winter and, you know, sit on a train or go to a job that I might not necessarily love with all of my heart at that moment in time, but I know that it provides a standard of living that I never thought that I'd have, so I make that sacrifice. Since Remy left her life of crime, she believes dealers are now more violent and street drugs have become more expensive and dangerous. It's an ugly world now. It's, it's very different to what it used to be, which was another decision I made morally to step away. I think one of the biggest things that's changed is overall the quality of the drugs. People paying top dollar for bottom, bottom shelf things. So it's, what, 350 for 0.8, of a gram of cocaine these days. But there's 0.2 worth of cocaine in that if you're lucky. There was codes back in the day. There were certain things that you would do. Families were off limits. Now they'll come shoot at your family home, they'll shoot at your kids' school, they'll shoot at your kids' daycare. It's Nothing's off limits anymore. And to me, that's just... It was a business, and business has structure and it has processes and protocols. There's no structure, there's no processes, there's no protocols. It's every man for themselves and who can get the quickest buck the easiest way. So it's more dangerous now for drug dealers than it was when you were operating? 100%. Like I said, they're the biggest targets. No one's, no one's robbing servos, no one's robbing banks. If you're robbing a server or a bank in this day and age, you're an idiot because you're not getting anywhere. You're done 10 minutes later. So they rob drug dealers. Who's the drug dealer going to call? Unless you're really connected and you know some people who are really going to ride out for you, which is not very many people, let's be honest. What are they going to do? Remy played an active part in a devastating supply chain responsible for social, health and economic harms. And I wanted to know how she's come to terms with the things she's done. I didn't stop and think about any of the misery that I was inflicting on people. I didn't stop and think about the fact that money from drugs is used to fund wars in other countries. You know, I, I didn't stop and think about the fact that I was a reason for marriages breaking down and things like that. 
because to me it was all money. I didn't I didn't see humans. I saw a transactional um, occurrence between me and someone and me providing something they needed. And basically at that time my mindset was they're the adult, not me. Who am I to tell somebody who's twice my age what to do with their time or money? There'll be people listening to this who may have had their own lives ruined by drugs or who may have friends who themselves have had their lives ruined by drugs. They might be angry and say what you did actually destroyed lives. What would you say to that? I agree. It did, and it certainly would have, and that's a reality I have to live with. That's something that's on my conscience. And it's also, like I said, another reason that I had to get out of that because once you develop a conscience, that world's not for you. If you actually consider what you're doing to people, you can't actually deal with yourself at night. Do you feel any shame for the damage those drugs might have caused? Yeah, 100%. That's something that I do really struggle with now that I'm older, now that I've well and truly developed a conscience, knowing firsthand through my own experiences in life what I've inflicted on other people is the most bitter pill to swallow. These days, Remy says she's back in with her family and she tolerates but will never forgive her stepfather. I deal with him from time to time for the sake of my family. Him and my mother and him did have two children together, so he's still somewhat involved in our life and in the family dynamic, um, although my mother and him have been separated for some time. But I do not go out of my way to deal with him or associate with him unless it's a family-related event where I'm just merely civil and nothing more. While things remain frosty with her stepfather, Remy's become closer than ever with her mum. My mum was just happy that I was happy and I was healthy and that I'd managed to make it through that and make something of myself and turn my life around. Did they know about your life as a drug dealer? No, um, it wasn't something that I spoke openly about um, and hasn't been something that I spoke openly about. When I was younger, it was sort of like you just don't ask and you don't tell and they don't know how I'm getting by, but they're assuming that I'm, I'm fine and obviously I'm doing it, so it got left at that. You have your own family now, your own loved ones. Do you protect them from the drug world? Yeah, and that's a huge thing for me. I've only ever dated one person in my entire life who would even use drugs on a frequent basis, and that was enough for me. It's something I've drummed into my younger siblings' heads. I spent many hours drumming into their heads all the negative things, all the bad things that I went through and was quite honest with them about everything I went through in the hopes that I'd deter them from ever attempting to do the same thing. Background Briefing's sound producers are Lila Schoener and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Anne-Marie de Betancourt. Field producing by Amos Roberts. Our supervising producer is Mario Christodoulou. The executive producer is Fanu Falali. And I'm Ahmoud Fazal. You can subscribe to Background Briefing on the ABC Listen app. Thanks for listening.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.